Yeah, definitely. So how many of you are watching that and like, how is that kid that old already? Anybody have that feeling? Go to Ephesians chapter 1 with me this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. It is officially after Thanksgiving, so we are allowed to talk about Christmas in the Taylor home. We are allowed to listen to Christmas carols now. The rest of you terrorists who listen before Thanksgiving, you can be forgiven. It's going to take a while. Ephesians chapter 1, the kids just did a fantastic job reading that. Why don't we go ahead and pray before we jump in. Father God, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it is to see our young people stand before us and read your word. Father, I thank you that as we hear your word and try to digest it, Father, that we we are overwhelmed. And Father, today I pray two things. I pray a lot, but two things specifically, Father, that that if we're not overwhelmed with what we're reading today, that you would slay us. Your spirit would crush us and cause us to just understand in a way we haven't before what we have been given in Jesus Christ. And Father, if there's somebody here who is not in Jesus Christ, I pray that today they would understand that God has them here on purpose. That the Holy Spirit is drawing them. May they come to the end of themselves which is the glorious beginning of hope when they confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. May that happen even here today. Lord, I pray you give us wisdom, cause us to see you more clearly. In Christ's name I pray, amen. I am excited and intimidated by Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 has got more information packed into a single sentence. Verses 3 through 14 That is a single sentence from the Apostle Paul. He is a pastor. He can't stop talking. I can relate. As we look at Ephesians, what we're doing is this is our Christmas series. Now, I know some of you have been coming the last few years, and um, the last few years we've actually done an Advent series with a focus on Advent, and that's a traditional church um, uh, event. And, And this year, we're not doing... Advent, we're doing a Christian uh, Christmas series. Not Advent, we're doing Christian. Good idea. Um, we're doing a Christmas series. And the idea behind Advent usually is there's four concepts. And it doesn't matter. It's so fun. Running in the circles I run in, about last week, you start seeing things pop up on message boards and blogs and Twitter and Facebook and stuff. All these people are like, okay, so what order is it supposed to be? Is it hope, love, joy, peace, hope, joy, love, peace, hope, peace, love, joy, hope? And it's like, it doesn't matter. That's the typical themes for Advent, hope, love, joy, peace. I can't preach over the next four weeks out of Ephesians 1 and focus on just one of those. Every verse in Ephesians 1 is packed with hope, love, joy, and peace. And so that is going to be our plan in the next few weeks is to focus on those amazing aspects of Ephesians chapter 1. The first couple of verses, Paul's doing an introduction, and he says to them, you know, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Grace to you, peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. When when, um, Paul addresses this church, he's addressing a people that he is very familiar with. Let me give you a little background to the the Ephesians and the church at Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus... Uh, is one of the largest cities of the first century, the Greco-Roman first century. The only two cities that were larger at this time would have been Rome and Alexandria. 
So it's a, it's a big place. It's on a main trade route. It has a, a, um, a harbor, a, a key harbor where a lot of trade went through it. So this city, being on the harbor, being of, of great population, became um, a multicultural city of, of trade, communication, uh, entertainment, education, politics, philosophy, religion. I mean, you had it all jammed into this place. And, and as it grew in its popularity, it became a hotbed for people to move towards. Because they could experience things in Ephesus they couldn't experience elsewhere. They had one of the largest libraries of the day. So there was all kinds of opportunity for the study and, and education. They had one of the um, best medical fields in the known world at the time. And so you could get your diseases treated and you could take care of your family and, and, and friends and loved ones. But all of these people began packing into Ephesus. And what you have then happen is what happens in many of our cities today. People from a multitude of backgrounds, all kinds of cultures, all kinds of religions kind of converge in one place. And, and when that happens, it actually creates even more viewpoints of philosophy and education and, and religion. And so the rule for the day, the rule for the city of Ephesus was this word called pluralism. Pluralism, you're, you're taking a little bit of everything and assimilating it into one thing, and that seems to be the, the best thing of the day. Or another view of pluralism is, hey, you can hold to what you want to hold to. I'm going to hold to what I want to hold to, and we'll be good, okay? We'll be good. So, so pluralism was exploding in Ephesus, and in the area that you saw it most particularly was in the area of religion. The people of Ephesus were extremely religious. There are at least 50 different gods that had some sort of temple in that city. Um, there's a, a, somebody who had traveled to, it's modern-day Turkey. He had traveled there, which is very appropriate this week, I think, if you don't say so myself. Um, sorry, there's the one dad joke for the morning. You're welcome. Um, uh, there's a rabbit trail I'm not going to chase. Uh, this guy was traveling, and his, his commentary on uh, what he saw was everywhere you looked, there's an altar to a god or to an emperor. And if there's not an altar, there's some type of symbol. So, so the religion had kind of exploded, and it was focused in every different direction. But the one primary religion of Ephesus was the worship of the goddess Artemis. Now, some of you are familiar with your history far more than I am. Um, my nieces, who were in town for Thanksgiving, are far more familiar with history than I am. They know a song about the seven ancient wonders of the world. I had never heard the song, and I can't sing it for you, not just because I can't sing, but I still don't know the seven ancient wonders of the world, except for this one, the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. It was huge. Artemis was the fertility goddess. They worshipped her as such. Um, they built this thing out of marble. By the time it was done, it had 127 marble pillars surrounding it. Um, it is... One of the most famous buildings in all of history is the Parthenon in Rome, right? It's more than double the size of the Parthenon in Rome. This thing was enormous, and they took huge pride in it. And so, so that's kind of the city. Then, then you get to Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 19, and what you find is that the, this church is birthed in Ephesus. In this, this pluralistic hotbed, a church is birthed. And how is it birthed? Well, first, this guy named Apollos comes into town. Apollos is one of the most fascinating um, characters of the New Testament to me. I, I find him riveting, because there's not a lot 
spoken about him. We don't get a lot of details about him, but the way he is described in, in Acts is that he is um, articulate and competent. I'll go with that. I mean, if you're not going to give me the Joseph good-looking and stately, I'll go with articulate and competent. It's a fairly good mix. The problem with Apollos was he came in and he preached and he could gather their attention, but he didn't have all the dots connected, and so he was lacking in some of his theology. And so this couple took took him under their wing, Priscilla and Aquila, and began to teach him the finer points of theology and to help him understand this is what it means that we're in Christ. And and it seems that that helped Apollos' ministry explode from there. Following Apollos, Paul comes into town. Paul is in Ephesus. He begins teaching the believers there in Ephesus, and he's like, so, hey, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. And their response is, the Holy who? The Holy Spirit. We have no idea what you're talking about, Paul. He's like, oh. So that begins a more than two-year stint of Paul staying in Ephesus, teaching the believers, discipling the believers, teaching them theology, getting them to understand how their faith was to be lived out in Ephesus at that day, this extremely pluralistic culture and society. While he was doing those things, Acts chapter 19 tells us that Paul was also doing some, (laughs) and I like the way it says it, extraordinary things. So what are extraordinary things? Well, he was casting out demons. That's kind of extraordinary. And as word got out about this amazing work of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus as he's casting out demons, seven artificial apostles heard about it and were quite interested. Seems to be a pretty cool thing to do, cast out demons. Now, you know it's going to go bad when you hear their name. They're the sons of Sceva. Those are not good people you can tell right out of the gate. So the seven sons of Sceva approach this demon. And they say very clearly and articulately to this, 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 this demon, let me make sure I quote them correctly, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. The evil spirit answered them. That's not good either, by the way. I know Jesus. I recognize Paul. Who are you? Oh, but it gets even better. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Acts 19, verse 16 says this. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them. So they ran out of the house naked and wounded. I don't know how you keep score in a lot of fights, but if you're in a fight and you end up without any clothes on, you lost. (laughs) And the wound, that wound is far worse than a black eye. That wound must go right to the soul. That's a mama wound. Like, mommy, help me. So, yeah. Following that, and I don't know it's because of that, but it is contextually right after that people of Ephesus, there's, a, there's almost a revival that occurs. They're confessing, they're disclosing their evil practices. Those who practiced magic and witchcraft collected all of their books of incantations and burned them in front of everybody. And, and, and it's just this amazing moment that's happening, and, and you're seeing the, the pluralistic culture of Ephesus begin to be turned towards Jesus Christ. And the people of Ephesus were not happy particularly the business people of Ephesus. 
The reason being is that when people turn to Christ and away from the idols, they have no need of purchasing the idols that the businessmen have made, the craftsmen had made. And so now they're losing money left and right. They, they have no way to make money. How are we going to make money if Artemis is shut down? If, if there's a god in town that everybody's worshiping and saying, don't pay any attention to Artemis, how are we going to make money if they don't purchase our little knickknacks? And so this big riot occurs, and, and the people begin chanting, great is uh, Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, and it's really fascinating. At some point in the story, it tells us that people are gathering into the mob. It really is a mob mentality because they're screaming for hours. And at some point, a few of them are like, wait, what are we mad about? But they're still screaming. And finally, somebody with some level head comes in and says, guys, we can't be doing this. Rome's gonna, they're going to crush us if they find us gathering like this. And so let's disperse. And everybody disperses. That's the culture, the context of our book of Ephesians. Now put yourself in their position. A believer in Jesus Christ, living in a culture that says we'll just take a little bit of everything and make that the highest good, or you serve who you want to serve, let me serve who I want to serve, and let's just be good. Just put yourself in their place for a minute. Not that difficult, is it? It's where we live. Now, this may sting a little, and I don't mean it as an attack. I just mean it as an observation. I believe that even within this building right now, many of us are actually practical pluralists. So we, we believe that what, what goes around comes around like every good Buddhist does. We're practical atheists. We live like we believe that God can't actually see us because he doesn't really exist. We practice emperor worship with our politics. Imperialism is a religion in the way we view our country. We serve and worship at the feet of spiritual narcissists with our podcast listening habits. And then we've created this idol that looks an awful lot like us. Because we're the greatest good. And so it's what I want, when I want it, how I want it. I think the sad part is, is then we wonder why we can't gain any traction in our walk with Jesus. It's because you're practicing a religion that's trying to appease all the idols of the American culture. That's spiritual bondage. That's what Ephesians, the church of Ephesus was dealing with. And that's what we're dealing with. But here's the good news. As Paul begins the book of Ephesians, he makes this amazing, freeing statement for all of us. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. In Jesus, the one who sits in the highest of heaven, Jesus himself, we have assurance of all of God's favor and every spiritual blessing. There is nobody else to appease. There is nothing else needed. So you can ignore all those frauds who come along and say, if you do this, you get a special spiritual blessing. You don't need that, and that doesn't even work. Paul's saying to you right now, every spiritual blessing in the heavens is yours in Jesus Christ. He uses the word every. That means, in the Greek, 
All of them. Now, and I don't mean the, the trivial things like life, uh, like, like, like money, uh, possessions. He's talking about eternal treasures. He's, ta- he's talking about being reconciled to God. He's, he's talking about one day, you know, you are going to enjoy that full reconciliation face-to-face with Jesus when you're in his presence. But, but right now, these spiritual blessings that have been given to us can be enjoyed right now and fill our heart with a joy that is indescribable. So stop sacrificing to the idol of the day and know it's Jesus and only Jesus. It's the greatest gift that God could have given us. Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. How much time y'all got? This is one of the, the greatest distractors from this amazing text is when we try to impose our attempts at understanding what's going on with those words. He chose us in him. So let me give you a word of warning. We we can talk about these things. We can enjoy diving into the theological nuances of things like Reformed theology, Calvinism, Arminianism, all of those different things. But when those things become a roadblock to hearing the comfort and the encouragement of this text, you're doing it wrong. So let me, (laughs) I heard this last night and I'm like, that's it. We tend to be like audiences who have gone to a magic show. How many, any of you ever been to a magic show? Yeah, a lot of you are afraid to admit it. That's sad. Oh, I did once. Did you, I didn't ask if you enjoyed it. I just asked if you went. So the reality is a lot of times at magic shows, at least half the crowd is sitting there trying to ruin their own night. Because they're watching the tricks. They're looking for the mirrors. They're seeing the angles. They're like, I know how we did it. And really what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to sit and enjoy and be in awe. The problem is that sometimes when we come to things like being chosen, or the word that comes up in the next verse, being predestined, and all of these different theological things, that, that, that we are trying to work so hard to figure it out that you are like somebody who's gone to the magic show trying to figure it all out, and instead of sitting in awe and enjoying, you're ruining your own time. Sometimes we have to rest in the fact that he's God and we're not. There's such freedom in that. Let me, here's here's Psalm 113. This is what the psalmist is saying. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is just like that weaned child. What he's saying is there's times where you just need to sit and be blown away by God. Now, I'm not saying, I'm happy. I really am happy. I just did it in the membership class. I'm happy to sit down and kind of parse things with you and run through things and be the devil's advocate and make fun of you for being wrong, even though I know I'm wrong, and do all those fun things that you do with theology sometimes. But we need to understand that when it comes to chosen, I mean, he says it, okay? He chose us in him. He predestined us. That, that's not illogical or contradictory to when God says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God loved the whole world so much. That, that, that's not contradictory. That's not illogical. It's just beyond the grasp of our finite minds. So I can hold to the fact that God loves the whole world and that whosoever may come, will come and, and there's a free will of, of mankind. I can hold that intention with these verses 
and not even blink. I sleep fine at night. I've got, my favorite thing is this. You know you're doing it, oh, that was going to sound really arrogant. Let me fix that. I feel like a, let me find somebody else I can pick on. I have a friend. He looks a lot like me. <laughs> Just kidding. My father-in-law, I'll use him as an illustration. My father-in-law pastored the same church for 40 plus years. Um, one of my favorite things about him is that it was like he had a target on both sides. So the people who stood in that reformed Calvinistic camp blasted him because they thought he was Arminian. And the people who stood in the, the more Arminian camp blasted him because they thought he was Calvinist. And I'm like, wow, I mean, that hurts. But I think you're doing it right then, right? We're not positive how it all works together. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, I refuse. I think it's taking the easy way out to say, this is how God works, period, done. That's taking the easy way out. It also is a little scary because what that means is you just took the full mind of God and set it inside, even if it's like a, a, a series of books. You, you've got God fitting in books. Uh, uh, anybody else see a problem with that? So, so you've got to be careful. There's a holy tension, and that holy tension should exist in this. So all that to say, these verses aren't even about the process. So we need to be careful to not lose the awe of the moment. We need to be careful not to forget that God is so very good and so very God that before he created, before I screwed up, before I was even in my mama's belly, before I sinned, God declared I was his. You know what that means? means I never have to earn it. Because I never earned it to begin with. I can't possibly keep it on my own. It's got to be kept for me. And if I didn't earn it, then I can't unearn it. It means this. God is the source of your salvation. Not you. Not because you got great hair or a wonderful disposition. God is the source of your salvation, not you. And what he chose for you, don't miss this. I think we're like, chose, oh, we've got to enter this other discussion. Don't miss the context. Don't miss the text itself. Don't ignore these beautiful words. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Think about that. In, in Jesus, that, that, that phrase comes up an awful lot in this text. In Jesus, in him, in the beloved, through Jesus, through Christ. All of those things continue to be repeated over and over again in this run-on sentence of Paul. He says, in Jesus, God chose you to be holy and blameless. I've got to achieve holy and blamelessness. Nope. It's been given to you. So, so what's, what does that mean? It means, okay, in Jesus is different than being in Adam. If you are in Adam, that means Adam's record is yours. His sin is yours. His guilt is yours. You've inherited his sinful nature. And all mankind has been born in Adam. But if you are in Jesus, you're no longer in Adam. In Jesus, Jesus' record has become your record. His righteousness has become your righteousness. We have inherited a clean record and a new nature from him. And everything that is Christ is now ours. And Paul says, that's what I picked out for you. Choose a better gift. 
All right, so I don't have time to do this, but I feel like I need to do it anyway. The obvious response to this, even though it's not even in the text here, the obvious response to this is like when I hear it's chosen beforehand, okay, okay, what if I'm not chosen? That's the obvious response. It comes up all the time. First, if you aren't chosen, you don't care. So you're not even worried about not being chosen. Second, nobody who is aware of their sin and aware of his love and aware of his grace, aware of his forgiveness, aware of his redemption, has ever been like, yes, I choose Jesus, has ever been turned down by God because, oops, sorry, you're not chosen. Oops. Finally, being chosen isn't some insanely vivid experience. God doesn't suddenly, like, slap a highlight on your forehead and say, Mine! Now, John 6 tells us, as Jesus was talking, no man comes to the Father unless the Father draws him to himself. And one of the ways that God draws people to himself is by putting you in places and with people who know and love Jesus Christ because they know what he's done for them. One of the ways God draws people to himself is causing you to show up at a church in a cornfield the Sunday after Thanksgiving to make your family happy. So if you're sitting here this morning, let me tell you something very clear, and I can back this up with God's word. God died for you. Jesus Christ took your place on the cross, and he's got you here on purpose. This is God's word. It says you're broken, but you are not beyond repair. God's word says you may be lonely, but you are not doomed to isolation. God's Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart, even now. He wants to tell you that Jesus Christ died for you. And all you need to do is call on his name. Trust that his death for you was the only thing that can pay your sin debt. And when you call on his name, Jesus, the blood of Jesus is applied to your account. And then you stand before God, holy and blameless. Not because you deserve it, but because of his love and his mercy that has existed before you took your first breath. Because God is the source of your salvation. Uh, verses 5 and 6 says this. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved Again, that word comes up, predestined. I could do the whole thing again, but I won't. <laughs> what did he predestine us to? That's the point of this text. To be adopted as sons. Uh, um, some of you have been adopted. Some of you have adopted. Many of us have been around families who have gone through the adoption process and the journey and there's nothing really like it you know you can't compare it to something else you try to describe it to somebody you, you see your child for the first time and it's this instant connection love I, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it and you're taking that child 
into your family, into your home, to grow up with your name, with all the benefits that come with it. And that's what Jesus did. If you're in Jesus Christ, he walked into the orphanage of sin and said, that one. I'll give that one everything. And as a result, we are sons of the king. All right, another thing that comes up when you say that. Sons! I know, sorry, I was... Drink water, don't say what you're going to say, Frank. I, I know. Ladies, I know. Don't read scripture through eyes and minds that live in 2021. Let me help you for a second. When Paul says you have been adopted as sons, he means it. So, some versions have changed it to say sons and daughters. That misses the point. Wasn't that chauvinism? No. It's scandalous. Here's why. In the day and age that the book of Ephesians was written, it wasn't unusual for a woman to receive adoption and receive the, the inheritance from her family. It wasn't unusual. It was illegal. Illegal. And Paul says this. Guess what, ladies? When God comes in to make you his own, he's going to give you full inheritance, full value in the kingdom of God. You're not a lesser then. You are equal to, you are a sister in Christ with me. We get to stand before God together and look at Jesus, and I pray you respond the same way I do, which is going to be like, ha, ha, ha. Maybe high five each other every once again. Don't take your eyes off. This is amazing. How, how did this happen? How, how, did, how did this happen? How can I approach the throne of God? How can I stand before my Savior, Jesus Christ, with my sister in Christ? How can we be taken and ele be elevated to the same level? How can this possibly have happened because I have been predestined to be adopted through Jesus Christ? And now I can approach God with a new mindset. Like he's my daddy. And I know daddy brings up all kinds of images for everyone, but, but the beautiful thing about this is this adoption redeems even that word. So think about the, the littlest one running up and grabbing the neck of daddy and just holding on. Imagine a, a child running into the room where daddy's sitting, just jumping on his lap and just giggling. My kid said this crazy thing, and I'm pretty sure it's my own fault, called monkey leg. They would latch on, sit on my foot, grab my leg, and I would do this to try to get rid of them, and they'd be like, monkey leg, ha ha. There was no end of the game, so that was dumb. <laughs> but they, they don't care. They're holding on to daddy. You have a kid sitting with um, profound heartbreak. Frustration and confusion. 
pouring out their heart to daddy. That's what we've been given. In the middle of the chaos and the confusion of a world that's doing its best to get to hell faster. In the the roar of people crying out to God. The responsibility of maintaining everything that he has created. I mean, just the, think from God's perspective, the sheer noise and the volume of the universe. Just, and all that the adopted child of God needs to do is say, Daddy, and you've got his full attention. And that's just a small part. Because we've been adopted, we, we have the pardon for sin, protection from true harm. He disciplines us to guide us along the way. He sings over us with, with this delight and kindness. There's no better way to see it or, or way to understand how amazing it is than seeing his reasoning for adopting you. Did you see that in verse 6? Let me go back to verse 5. Sorry, verse 5. He protested us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ himself according to the good pleasure of of his will. Why did he adopt us? Because he wanted to. And it pleased him. Because his desire and his delight. There was a storyteller I was listening to this week. He's talking about the angst of always being chosen last for baseball. And maybe many of you have experienced that in your it's the most cruel thing in childhood. Waiting to be picked and chosen for the team. And you just wait. You wait. And the, and the captain always tries to ignore your eyes. Like, pick me, pick me. And the captain's like, oh. And, and his comment was, I always get picked last. And it never felt like pick. Felt like I was always, they were stuck with me. And just once, once, I'd like to be picked with some measure of enthusiasm. predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. I just want to be picked with some measure of enthusiasm. That is exactly when that would happen when, when the father said, that one, that one, mine. It was enthusiasm and, and joy. Not only do we get to enjoy this incredible relationship with God, not only do we get to enjoy all the benefits that come from being a member of his family, but we get to know he chose us to be his child for no other reason than it made him happy to. Hope, love, joy, peace. I think they're all wrapped up greatest gift that's been given to us ever in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your good word. Thank you for this incredible book of Ephesians. All of the depth and nuances that are there. All of the, the incredible reminders and encouragements. Thank you that we can know you better as we study, as we share, as we gather together and laugh and cry. Thank you that you loved us in your son, that you chose us and adopted us. Father, we don't understand it. 
and, and other than we know we need to be blown away by it. So Father, would you allow us to, as we view ourselves, not just view ourselves as, as ordinary run-of-the-mill people, but, but Father, may we truly see who we are in Jesus Christ. Would it sink deep into our souls and make us, make us humble, make us confident, make us, make us strong, make us a people who pursue you like no other. Father, I pray that, that, that we may really understand so we can be participants with you, so we can walk with you, so we can love what you love and hate what you hate and truly bear a family resemblance. God, it's a world desperately needs you. May we be a picture of a people who've experienced a gift that is impossible Thank you, Father, for being the author and finisher of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name I pray.